0: Hello, and welcome back. So, at the end of the last episode of Love Letters Bound in Gold Handcuffs, after complaining about having not enough letters from Lee, Roland got a giant one from her, about her trip through the desert to Siwa.
1: Hampstead, Monday 25th of October. Darling, my love, it's three weeks today since the worst of all partings three weeks less until I shall see you again. Your letter arrived this morning, making me very happy and very miserable. Miserable because it is so little a letter when one wants you, and because you don't seem to be happy either. All that makes it more and more intolerable and absurd. I have spent three days working, repainting that rather silly little picture of the boat that I began in Cornwall, and thinking of you every five minutes. I went downtown after to a cocktail party at the London Gallery in honour of Léger, who has a show there, and drank ten champagne cocktails. Peter Norton was as febrile and monkey-like as usual, Léger de très bon humeur, and several of our friends, such as Herbert Reed and the old gang. Although
2: Ferdinand Léger could not really be called a surrealist. Roland liked his work. He celebrated the dignity of work and the importance of workers. He clearly had strong left-wing sympathies and Roland loved the colors and the boldness of the paintings. The connection between Leger and the surrealists was quite strong. After the war, Paul Ellouard's poem, Liberté, j'écris ton nom, Liberty I Write Your Name was published as a beautiful fold-out poster. That poem was the most fantastic rebellion against the Nazi occupation of France. It was such a bold thing. It became the rallying cry of many of the French resistance. So it had a huge symbolism during and after the war. And it was Leger who illustrated it when it was published as a fantastically beautiful fold-out poster.
1: My pictures have arrived, the house is just full of them, and the overflow takes up most of Annie's bedroom. Certainly the effect is very impressive. La jeune fille à la mandoline, that very subtle cubist Picasso hangs over the table in the living room, with your portrait on the wall next to it still waiting for its frame, making a strange contrast of past and present. Then there are Chirico everywhere, honeycombing the walls with metaphysical interiors. The hall is full of Picasso engravings and drawings, and the dining room looks very impressive with the big Miro nude and La Femme en Verre of Picasso. It will take me some time to get used to so many important arrivals, and I have a struggle with Tripotin, who wants to send them all off to America before I have even seen them. He won't get his way, I'm afraid. About your portrait, darling, I have found a frame that I think will suit it very well. It is now being furbished up, and I shall have it here on Friday. But I want, with your permission, to send the picture to Cambridge for the surrealist exhibition that I am arranging for them. Being so recent a work, and so good, I would very much like all the little boys in Cambridge to take a squint at it. I shan't mention that it is your portrait. The exhibition closes on the 20th of November, and I will have it packed at once and sent to you. I shall be terribly sorry to lose it, as it reminds me of you, and fills my room with your adorable presence. It is so gay... "'Contains all Mougin, all the summer, the sea and your laugh. "'Your photo sits on the chimney-piece, one that man gave me. "'And I look at it, even while talking to rather boring people, "'who little know the effect that it is causing. "'Your fussiness about me is most touching. "'I will give Lionel instructions next time I see him, but above all, darling... It was sweet of you to think of me first. As it is, the slow regime of letter-writing is almost more than I can bear. I often think of the telephone or cablegrams so as to try to get nearer to you, but hesitate as I don't know how I could find you. Tripotin is asleep on the couch, snoring like the deep sea. So I suppose I must break off, shake him out into bed and go to bed myself. Thea is going in two or three days' time, and one degree more of solitude sets in. She has been very charming and seems really to like staying here. I tell her about you, even call her Blee by mistake, when my thoughts are a long way off across the Mediterranean as they usually are, but she just laughs and says she quite understands. Tuesday. Darling, if you made the most concentrated solution possible and poured it into my carcass from the top of my head so that it ran into every corner and solidified, it would still not fill me half as much as I am filled with you. Why is it that among all the words in all the languages in the world there is just one which I want to repeat aloud and to myself all day long and which, when I hear it, has all the power of a high explosive? Lee. It even gives me intense pleasure to write it. Da, I live for one thing only. Your return. Today I got a letter from my solicitor. Valentine apparently has done what I asked her to in the way of legal procedure, and now it is merely a question of time before I am free. But it may take as long as a year to finish up everything. This is naturally a great relief to me. It clears up the past and makes an end to that impossible situation.
0: The Valentine that Roland refers to here is the woman he had been married to for over 10 years before meeting Lee.
2: Valentine was the most wonderful, enigmatic, extraordinary person that you could imagine. She was a poet through and through because she kind of lived her poetry. She was deeply spiritual. She could really commune with nature and see things that nobody else could see and convey that vision to us with her words. When she and Roland met, he was immediately enchanted by her. She, I think, was possibly suffering from some hormonal complaint at the time because it made her extraordinarily temperamental. And for no reason at all, she would get into a ferocious mood and storm off. Roland said she always left careful clues for me to find so I could go and track her down. But it was this sort of wildly exciting temperamental relationship that Roland must have found very stimulating after the extreme constraints of his rather puritanical upbringing. After a while, it got too much. After a while, the fact that Valentine was lesbian and Roland knew that before he married her that got in the way. And eventually, they found that they had drifted irrevocably apart. When they divorced, they then became close friends. And Valentine came to live for very long periods with Roland. She became a really close friend of Lee Miller's. And in fact, she died here at Farley Farm a year after Lee.
1: Joseph and Eileen are back. They came to dinner on Sunday and naturally asked after you. They had stayed on at Moujean for weeks and still looked brown and in excellent form.
2: The Joseph and Eileen Roland mentions in his letter are, of course, Joseph Bard and Eileen Agar.
1: I am working hard at my cutie from the Caledonian market painting her cheeks, making up her eyes as whorishly as the girl we painted together in Cornwall. She is going to look like this when finished. I have ordered the most beautiful blonde wig for her, which will be dyed bright blue as it arrives in the plate, so as to look almost like water. I am still not quite sure what to put in the cup formed by her neck. I have thought of a little table and chair very small, very drawing room-like. But you may, as usual, have a much brighter idea.
2: The Caledonian cutie that Roland refers to was the head of a woman. I mean, not the real thing, it was a kind of model that you might have outside a hairdresser's salon to demonstrate the latest coif. He took her home, sawed the head off at the neck, turned her upside down, inserted funnels into the base. He fitted her with a long blonde wig. The tips of the hair was dyed blue and it draped down across the base from which the head was suspended upside down. He called it the dew machine. The Caledonian cutie had morphed into the dew machine. It is the most bewitching object. Sadly, it was destroyed in the war we don't have it today except in photographs the dew machine itself morphed into a painting titled the invisible island the woman's head descends from the clouds there's good weather there's bad weather everything's happening at once night and day yet the hair drifts down over this beautiful little coastal village it's as though there's some wonderful blessing coming out of the sky the face is that of the Caledonian cutie it's not of Lee's Lee had blue eyes and a much more beautiful face but Lee is here in the picture in the foreground there's a hand it's Lee's hand there's no shadow instead behind it there's light perhaps he's saying that Lee has brought us enlightenment
1: well Maybe. I don't know. I hope you had a very good time fishing. Did you use the crew tackle from Toulouse and the wolf pacifiers? You probably made a better job of it than our days sitting at Cannes. My love, I look forward to your next letter with furious impatience. I do hope you are sleeping better and feel happier. If ever the strain becomes too great, well, I needn't hide the rest. You know, darling, what to do. I must sit and wait and long for you. I love you, my Duke, more and more and more. I'm entirely yours. Roland Wednesday, 27th of October My darling, my Lee There's some consolation to be found. I suppose, in thinking that we aren't the first to be in this sort of mess. I am so anxious, darling, that you should find a solution and not be so miserable. And you know, of course, the only solution which seems possible to me. I can see clearly your difficulties. But I never can think that for people like us it is much use trying to tie one's heart up with promises about always. You mustn't be depressed about that. And it won't make me love you one bit less, even if I knew that you might not love me in ten years' time. In fact, it seems a miracle that you have ever loved me at all. And if you saw me here in London in October, instead of in the brilliance of the midday sun, it would probably all be over in ten minutes. But that I simply don't take into account, and it seems to me very serious that you should be so isolated I long for you physically, but I long for you also in lots of other ways. Your way of seeing things when we are out together is a thing I miss all the time. Your way of making every moment we spent together new and significant. Your abandon, your affection, your sense of humour. That those should suffer is very bad. I want to repeat to you. Come back and urge you To with all my power. But my problem is so much more simple than yours. Nothing stands in the way on my side, and I can do so with the conviction that life with you would be inconceivably more happy than my present existence as a disgruntled hermit. So I must wait until you see clearly what you must do. And I want you more and more. About the photos. Humphrey Jennings, a friend of mine in Dufay Color, says that in a week or two they will be able to make prints here like in America. So send the transparencies and I will get them done. I have nearly completed my album. There are still a few Cornish ones missing and the ones you stole.
3: Almost simultaneously, German and American scientists developed 35 millimeter color film in germany it was known as agfa color in america it was known as kodachrome and they, these uh, two formats would dominate the world of color photography for the next 20 years or so roland and lee talk about sending kodachromes to each other so that they can see things in color That was a big attraction of colour photography, the opportunity to see the world as the human eye saw it, rather than in black and white. But printing and publishing colour photography was less straightforward and very expensive. Processing this film was also very expensive and needed specialist equipment. Unlike black and white film, which could be done in, in a home darkroom with minimum skill, Colour, transparency and ectochrome needed specialist equipment and much of that was not in Egypt.
1: Last night Leger and the Nortons came to dinner and we went on afterwards to a party at Ben Nicholson's where I met your bete Noire Sandy Calder. Leger admired my picture collection very much and really seemed to like the postcard collages which was gratifying. On Tuesday, I dined with Iris's sister and brother-in-law, who is a barrister and rather nice. Kisling, the partner who I had not seen for ten years, was there, and we ate and drank incredibly good things. Moise Kisling was a Polish
2: Jew, and he had a studio in Montmartre. He used to work in the bateau Lavoie. When Roland first met Kisling, he was probably living in Montparnasse. and Roland wrote in his memoir I had some difficulty in adjusting myself to the spectacular heterosexual society of Montparnasse. I had got to know Kisling, a very amiable Polish painter, who had a retinue of saucy girls as models. He took great pleasure in transforming them with oil paint and canvas into peachy nudes that sold well. I was encouraged by him to come up to his studio as often as I liked. Poor Serencé-Louis, to rinse my eyes.
1: Thea is leaving on Saturday. She is very sympathetic and I shall miss her very much. But I have to go to Cambridge from Monday to Wednesday next and I shall be too busy hanging the show there to think of much else but you and pictures. Tripotin is still here. He distinguished himself yesterday by falling asleep in the London Gallery for two hours in the middle of the afternoon, while all sorts of distinguished visitors tripped over his legs without waking him. His snores were tremendous, they say, and he woke up to find that he had a notice pinned to himself offering him for sale at £2, reduced from £2.10. My love, your reproach about not getting enough letters cuts me to the quick. It is not that I haven't wanted to write more often. On the contrary, it is one of my best moments when I sit down to talk to you. I was afraid of too many letters in the same handwriting causing embarrassment to you. Now I know I will write more often. Goodbye, darling, for the present. I must go downtown. I love you. Roland. Footnote. Do be careful of yourself, especially in your car. Sometimes I have terrible visions of you driving like near the Pays de Dome. Don't think me fussy, but please be careful.
0: So this is on Lee's um, kind of creamy white airmail paper again, and it's typed on her typewriter. it's dated the 28th of October. Darling... In a few years' time, people will speak of the rainy season in Egypt, just like in India or Abyssinia, for in ten days we've had five of storm and pouring rain. Last night a real cloud burst, with the cellar completely flooded, all the house leaking from the roof to the terrace doors, and everyone helpless with laughter, or frightened at the lightning and thunder. The kitchen is a swimming pool, and I made eggs on a primus in that I couldn't get to my dinner party read by candlelight and wondered what to do with the telephone dead as Aziz went off to Alex and probably had to spend the night in the desert full of raging torrents. Yesterday I went swimming in the club pool during a terrific downpour. Out of curiosity and because it looked so pretty. The rain smashing into my face from all directions, coming down and bouncing back, practically drowned me. But it was quite lovely, with great bubbles, thousands of nipples and a haze of spray. Everyone was shocked. They've just got reconciled to my bathing costumes and kept telling me of the danger of lightning in the water. They also tell me that I should have my back to the sun to take a photo and that it won't come out if I take it in the shade and that I shouldn't swim when I'm unwell or after drinking or eating, and a number of other beautiful and fantastic old wives' tales. I think I'll make a list of them one day. Here's a sample. All in one day. To prick yourself with a pin is more dangerous than a needle. That if you sleep in the broad moonlight you'll become neurasthenic. That soda water contains soda. That using a brush makes your nails split not counting all the crossed fingers, wood knocking, salt over the shoulder, wine behind the ears, and stepping in caca. I'm reading a book that almost gives me tears. Life and Death of a Spanish Town by Elliot Paul, published in New York by Random House. I hesitate to tell you to read books, but you might look at it. Read part anyway and see if you think it's worthwhile for you. There's a movie in town called The Last Train from Madrid, but I haven't courage to go see it as I'm afraid what it might be. But the gayest film with the wonderful set of wisecracks dances, especially the one in the engine room, and the songs that broke my heart is Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers' Shall We Dance. The Hopkinsons are giving a circus costume party on the 12th of November, and I think I'll go as the tattooed woman, providing I can find someone to paint me in amusing designs and paint that will stick through heat and pouring. I really wanted some illuminous paint, but I can't get any here that anyone knows the consistency of, and I'm afraid of poisoning myself. If you're in London when you get this and know who to ask, and where maybe you could find some that isn't dangerous, or maybe furnish another idea for me? So far there are bearded ladies, the Marx Brothers, lion tamers, strong men, trapeze artists, assorted animals with their trainers, peanut vendors and card sharpers. If I were a man... I'd go as an orderly with a dustpan and broom to follow the animals around and I'd love to annoy everyone with some live snakes as a serpent charmer or let loose a lot of white rats or a tin-type photographer would be fun, but heavy and I loathe being uncomfortable or having accessories at parties. All of Egypt who went abroad is drifting back one by one, each one in turn mystified by not having seen me once in the last week I spent there and making sly remarks to each other about my having my own friends in Europe, and amazed that I didn't need or want their company as they needed each other's. The political situation is in a more than usual muddle here. The students are united to make trouble, and the press is forbidden to mention them. So every day, by roundabout means, we hear of how many battles they had with fire hoses and stones, the injured and wounded, what they are angling for and why
4: when britain nominally gave egypt independence in 1922 it retained the right to keep its forces in and around the suez canal to be in charge of communications to continue its occupation of sudan all of which were very disagreeable to the egyptian nationalist movement that wanted a complete liberation from britain so With the Italian invasion of Abyssinia in 1936, the Egyptian nationalists in government seize the opportunity to try and renegotiate the terms of the Egyptian independence and Britain is sort of cornered into accepting terms that it had been uh, before that point unwilling to accept. So the renegotiation of the Anglo-Egyptian treaty is at first welcomed by people in the nationalist movement. But they begin to realize that it didn't offer immediate freedom from the British occupation. And it leads to a wave of student unrest.
0: But it's all very mysterious and the streets are prowled by trucks full of the army in a hurry to get to some strategic place or the riot line. Ambulances on hard rubber tyres, tram cars in certain directions stopped in order to interrupt communications and keep the boys from getting together. The universities are closed and most of the bridges left open to prevent the students from invading the ministries. It looks like the end for Natchez Pasha as he's making gaffes every day and the king has become so popular that he is almost a party now instead of neutral.
4: This is an interesting comment that Lee makes. She says it looks like the end for Nahas Pasha as he's making gaffes every day. And that, that, that's really interesting because Nahas Pasha is the leader of the WAF, the largest nationalist party, but he is in charge of renegotiation of the Anglo-Egyptian treaty. When the terms of the treaty appear to be less, you know, exciting than than they had first sort of promised to be, uh, Nahas becomes really, really unpopular. And people begin to understand him as a sort of crony of the British. Now, the comment about the king is interesting because King Farooq had come to the throne in 1936. So the point at which he'd come to the throne, he was too young. And in order to allow him to accede to the throne, they recalculate his birth date according to the Islamic calendar. And the king is very handsome. And that is something that comes up again and again and again in the kind of popular literature at the time. And he is beginning to flirt with elements of the Egyptian political elite that are courting the Nazis and the fascists as a way to get at Britain. And this begins to cause huge panic. The young king is also portrayed as a kind of Tutankhamun. The tomb was discovered about a decade earlier. There's a kind of aesthetic and artistic Egyptomania the world over. And the accession of the boy king, Pharaoh to the throne has all sorts of parallels with that of the boy king Tutankhamun. And that's not lost on the commentariat.
0: My beautiful Picasso etchings arrived last night and I'm bewildered what to do with them in a way. I'm afraid to trust my framer with them as he is an Italian and might know what they're all about if I tried to include the manuscript in it. I don't want to leave them in the portfolio as I have so few things around me that I like looking at. I'd rather have them on a wall where I can see them and rage.
2: Picasso's series of etchings, The Dream and Lie of Franco, are so stridently anti-fascist, anti-Franco, that nobody could mistake the content. And perhaps that is why Lee was a little worried about sending them to her Italian framer, because she probably assumed that the Italian framer might have had fascist sympathies coming from a place that was very fascist in its, uh, in its politics at that time, Italy. She chose red, the emblematic color of communism, for the frames, because she knew that those of her acquaintances who were fascists would notice it and understand the meaning of the color. So when she mentions her framer
4: having fascist sympathy, that's not just a product of the fact that there are elite nationalist politicians flirting with fascist-aligned movements on the kind of logic of my enemy's enemy. But also because Egypt has quite a large Italian population at this point, there is this kind of historic connection to figures that would inspire the Italian fascist movement. So Marinetti, for example, the futurist, was born in Alexandria. And you know, there are Italian community schools in Cairo, in Alexandria, memoirs from the time people recall hearing Italian fascist marches in Egypt. But also, you know, people like D'Anunzio, the poet politician of Italian fascism, had from the beginning strong connections with the Egyptian nationalist movement. And there are even plans foot that are hatched but never actually come to fruition for Danuncio to arrange for arms to be smuggled into Egypt from Libya via Siwa into, into Egypt. And although it never really happens, it sort of attests to some of the more historic links that existed between Egypt and fascism.
0: You might occasionally tell me what's happening in Spain. And there is no independent press here except in Arabic, which I can't read. All the recent bombings of neutrals, etc., is laid on the government and lists of atrocities by the Madrid people. The English diplomatic and army people are very pro-Franco and make no covering about it. Even though they're very anti-Italian, they pretend that if Franco wins, which is what England hopes, to wrestle it away from German and Italian influence and bring theirs to bear, it's all very roundabout, it seems to me, and would have been so much easier to club in with the government in the first place. Anyway, I think I'll put red frames around the Picassos and hang them in the front hall, on account of how I know that most of my fascist friends know what they are. The frame has taken so long with the Holy Ghost that I've almost forgotten what it looks like, except that I love it. Will you take Kodachrome snaps of all your new pictures and send them to me? And have you done any more to the Day in the desert? "'Give my love to Tripola. Find him a girlfriend and he will annoy you less with long speeches of repressed love. "'Or is this girlfriend really there, the one who didn't answer letters to America?' "'Anyway, I think you don't write me often enough, and this is a complaint. "'Also, are you more astonished than I in the number of letters I write? "'It's probably too late now, as it will have been sent back, and we don't know where to,' But in that we didn't leave my dress at the Hotel Acropole, they might have gotten my belt and not known what to do with it. I'm putting on weight again as I'm bored and always hungry. I have the guppy tummy in spite of my vaccine, and I'm fast becoming as lazy and idolent and ineffectual as the rest of the population. I was so full of plans and energy when with you, and for the first few days here, but now everything's just dissolved in hopelessness. I can't even get round to getting the prints out of the Kodak shop. The only thing that works is that I can send letters airmail to you without standing in line two hours in the post office by giving them to the club. If I had to do that, I'd soon give up writing to you, which is my only pleasure. I look at the few snapshots I have of you and try and imagine you speaking or moving, but each day it's less movement and your voice is less strong and I'm more lonesome than before. Darling, darling... Lee. In the next episode, Roland responds to Lee's request for more information about the Spanish Civil War, and he and Lee start to collaborate on producing surrealist artworks together. The contributors to this episode were Anthony Penrose, son of Lee Miller and Roland Penrose and co-director of the Lee Miller Archives, Dr Hilary Roberts of the Imperial War Museums London. Dr. Hussein Omar, lecturer of Modern Global History at University College, Dublin. Roland Penrose's letters were read by Adam Grayson, Lee Miller's, and the narration was by me, Amy Bouhassan. The music was composed by David Cullen, and the episode was produced by Tolly Robinson. This podcast and all its content is copyright The Lee Miller Archives 2021.